Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. This is New York Game Day with Anita Marks and Chris Canty on 98.7 ESPN. This is New York Game Day with Anita Marks and Chris Canty on 98.7 ESPN. Couldn't sleep last night. It felt like the night before Christmas. The NFL season is finally here after an offseason where you have so much movement. Chris, you can't make this story up if you try. Listen, I consider myself a creative person. I took creative writing in high school. I got an A-plus in this class. But I, I I couldn't even write this script if you asked me to. It's unbelievable. New York game day starts. Hard to get it done with Smallwood. Dilly dilly. No. Anita Marks, Chris Canty, and you here on 98.7 ESPN. 800-919-3776 is the phone number. Uh, This is what we're going to do. A lot happening around the NFL. Um, We're going to break down the games from last night. We're going to talk about the Giants and their coach search. Um, and we are going to start previewing today's matchups. And so Chris Canty joins me in studio. Hello, big fella. How you doing this morning, Anita? I am great. Let's get your mic on. And I don't know why my and mic every, on. Nope. Nope. And ev- behind the glass. There we Help go. Out. Here we go. It's early. We're good to go? All it's right. Early. I'm doing well. How are you doing, Anita? Um, well, I think you said it best. Football season. It's a grind. And uh, we just started the postseason, boo. Mm-mm-mm. We did, but mm-hmm. we had a hell of a game yesterday Whoa. down in Houston. I mean, that Texans-Bills game back and forth in the second half and in overtime, that was a very impressive game. Underwhelmed by the coaching by Bill, Bill O'Brien, but what else is new, especially in the playoffs. But the fact that you do have Deshaun Watson under center, that makes up for a multitude of sins from your football team. I didn't think the Texans played particularly well in any phase of the game in the first half. But you saw that defense come alive in the third quarter, and I thought that was the biggest difference in the game. After that new Hopkins fumble, you know, the Bills are driving the ball. They get it into the red zone, third and eight. J.J. Watt gets a sack. The crowd comes to life. They hold him to three in that situation. I felt like if the Bills found a way to punch that in for a touchdown and go up 20 to nothing, that would have been the ball game. But the fact that they kept it a two-possession game by being able to force that sack, I think that made all the difference in the world. And then, of course, you had the Whitney Merciless strip sack on third and eight later on in that quarter. And then, of course, Deshaun Watson drives the Texans down, and they get a field goal out of that. So it was just really impressive to see them, the Texans, play complimentary football in the second half. And then, of course, Deshaun Watson being the biggest difference maker in overtime, converting the third and 18 with the check down to Duke Johnson. And then the second and six, where he gets crushed by two Bills pass rushers, Somehow, some way, is able to stay on his feet, extend the play, and then, of course, find Taiwan Jones in the flat. And then he scampers down there and puts him in the field goal range. And that's all she wrote. But really impressive to see that defense of the Texans keep that team in it. And then Deshaun Watson, his playmaking ability, take over in the critical moments in the game. Again, the Texans do defeat the Bills 22-19 to at the half. Uh, the Bills were feel- feeling mighty good about themselves. I-, I was really questioning a few things here, Chris. Uh, one is, uh, why did they go to Frank Gore? You-, you have Devin Singletary, who the past few weeks has really come on strong. This is a running back who's averaging uh, 6.4 yards per carry. Uh, Frank Gore averaging 2.4. Um, so I-, I-, I really questioned why 
they didn't give the ball to Devin Singletary, especially towards the end of the game. Um, and, you know, I was talking about with Ty before you came in. It's really amazing. J.J. Watt coming off that pictorial injury mm-hmm. and there was reports that he was going to be on a pitch count. It's really amazing how one player can change the course of a game, like can change the vibe of the game, can change the momentum of the game, can change so much by one play. And, yep. and I really, looking back on this game, that's, that's, that's like, I, I'm just go, I, I, when I close my eyes and I think about this game from last night, I think about JJ Watt and, and not to take anything away from Deshaun Watson because he was magical, mm-hmm. especially in that, the overtime drive where he uh, evaded uh, getting sacked and, and of course got the ball off. But, it's really, really like J.J. Watt, just a force to be reckoned with, not playing at 100 percent and his energy changing the course of of action in, in and I think really instrumental in this Texan team winning. Oh, no question about it. And I said it on Friday. I thought that he was going to be a huge emotional boost for that Texans defense. Now, I didn't know what to expect from him coming off of the torn pectoral. To be honest with you, I don't know if he knew what to expect because he told Lisa Salters before the game that he's going to play, and if it if something happens, if the pectoral pops off the bone again, and that's just what it is. But you saw he had it heavily wrapped. He tried to, to limit the range of motion so he wouldn't have any issues. But early on in that game, he was finding himself. And that's typical when you see a guy away from the game for almost three months. I didn't know what kind of production we were going to get from J.J. Watt, and you can tell he was a little bit rusty. But in that third quarter, in the biggest moment of the game, in my opinion, you saw him step up and make a play, and that's exactly what they needed. I mean, he was he was the guy that they looked to for the emotional energy on that team, especially on that defense, and he delivered in a big way. The fact that he was able to get that sack again, limit the Bills to three under those circumstances rather than allow them to score a touchdown off of a turnover, I thought that was big because, again, if you, if you hit him right there with a big play and they, the Bills were able to get a touchdown, you're talking about a three-possession game as opposed to a two-possession game. So I think psychologically that did something for that team. And Deshaun Watson in that offense came out with a different energy that next possession. So J.J. Watt was a huge factor in that game. You can't take anything away from him. I didn't know where it was going to come from, but that to me was the pivotal moment. That was the game-changer play. Uh, was there and, – and I shared the stat before – do you ever remember a game where two quarterbacks led the led each team in rushing? Uh, you you had Josh Allen who almost put up a hundred rushing yards yesterday for the Buffalo Bills, and you had Deshaun Watson who put up fifty five for the Texans. Both quarterbacks led their teams in rushing yards. Chris, it's just it's a sign. It's a sign of this new wave of quarterback, this new era of quarterbacking in the NFL, and what teams need to win. Well, here's the thing. The offensive line play hasn't been good across the board in the NFL. So you need a quarterback that can get himself out of harm's way. I mean, even though Deshaun Watson was sacked seven times, I mean, you could have been talking about double-digit sacks as many times as he had to evade pass rushers from the Buffalo Bills. But, I mean, you got to credit Ryan Dable and, and Sean McDermott for understanding their quarterback, Josh Allen. And they talked about it before the game, Josh Allen, How are you going to get him settled down in his first playoff game? Well, he's one of those guys that he needs to get hit in order to get the jitters out. And you saw the Buffalo Bills call design runs early in that game. I mean, the longest run of the day was that design run for Josh Allen in the first possession for the Bills in that game. He scampers for 40 yards. And you could see that Josh Allen got comfortable early and settled in. And Deshaun Watson, not so much. So, I mean, you tip your cap to... 
the play calling from the Buffalo Bills, but then you also look at it and say it's an indictment on Bill O'Brien for not having more design runs for Deshaun Watson early to get him out of harm's way because that Buffalo Bills defensive line was teeing off on him on the first half. And if you're Bill O'Brien, you got to find a better way to be able to protect your quarterback. Yesterday, having Darren Fells pass protecting against Jerry Hughes, one of the best edge rushers in the NFL, that didn't make any sense, Anita. And so, yeah, coming into the playoffs, I thought that the Texans would be at a deficit in this coaching matchup against the Bills just because I thought that Bill O'Brien is the worst head coach in this playoff field, and I don't think that's even very... I know, it's I don't think that's even that close. Yes, it's like I said this earlier when I on on Fantasy Forecast. I said, how how can you... It's like you handed the win to Bill O'Brien. He's one of the worst game managers in the NFL as a head coach. But he tried to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory at the end of that game because it shouldn't have gone into overtime. The sequence of play calling when they got the ball back with a uh, little under two minutes to go, I mean, that was criminal, Anita. I mean, you gave it to Deshaun Watson at one time, but then two consecutive runs to Carlos Hyde. I just felt like you could have put more pressure on the defense with a different call in that situation. I I would like to get the ball to Deshaun Watson out on the edge of the defense and give him a run pass with a high percentage throw. But Bill O'Brien didn't do that. That's the part of it that doesn't, it doesn't feel good. And that's why I don't have any confidence that the Texans are going to be able to go in the arrowhead and make that game even competitive. I don't. Well, you you talk about that's the next step. Uh, the Texans heading to Kansas City. Kansas City is favored by eight. Uh, by the way, we were talking about JJ Watt just a second ago. Here's JJ Watt post game. My whole goal in coming back was to help this team win football games, and so whether that's providing a spark with a sack or whether that's you know trying to just something simple, trying to get the crowd riled up, um, that was the whole reason I came back. And. I'm not here to take credit for anything that offense did. Our offense did a hell of a job in that second half. And Deshaun Watson, Hop, all those guys, they did a hell of a job. And they are unbelievable. And I'm, like I said, I'm thankful to have them on our offense. It's just uh, really, really, really uh, such, a, and such a fun game to watch last night. Yeah. No, it was a fun game to watch. It, go, it went in overtime. It was a lot of back and forth, especially in the second half. But, I mean, Anita, this was one of those games that the Texans had to win just based off what Bill O'Brien has done with that team over the course of the last calendar year. Keep in mind, the Texans still don't have a general manager. So he's the one that's making the decisions as far as the personnel goes. I mean, the fact that he traded two first-round draft picks to bring over Laramie Tunzel, he traded to bring in Duke Johnson. I mean, he had a lot riding on this year's team to be able to advance past the, the wild card round. Like, I mean, he's won the AFC South four out of the last five years. So, I mean, this is a situation now where Bill O'Brien has got to be able to find a way to take this team to the next level. And had he lost that game to the upstart Buffalo Bills, it would be a different story about the Houston Texans and their coaching situation this morning because people will be talking about how long Bill O'Brien is going to keep his job. This is New York Game Day with Anita Marks and Chris Canty on 98.7 ESPN. Get on, um, you know, and put that on my shoulders, um, and especially with how well our defense played today. So, um teams go how their their quarterbacks usually go and um, I gotta be better for this team that is uh, Josh Allen uh, very very you could see boy you talk about a, a guy who wears his emotions on his sleeve Josh Allen uh, just looked so like sad <laughs> and, and, and well the- he's probably a little bit disappointed because he came out of a house of fire I mean the, everything was clicking for the Buffalo Bills offensively and then in the second half 
when the Houston Texans offense started to punch back a little bit, you could see the pressure start to build and the look on Josh Allen's face. His overall demeanor completely changed. I mean, he did some things that were just uncharacteristic. Like there was one play where he took off and he ran, and then he tried to lateral it. Now, heads-up play by the tight end Dawson Knox to bat the ball backwards and out of bounds and not take a penalty. But it was a situation where he did something that was unnecessary because he had already picked up a big chunk of yards and he had an opportunity to get his team close late in that game to field goal range. It was just a situation where Josh Allen didn't need to try so hard in in the second half and unfortunately made some mistakes and it ended up costing his team. Unbelievable. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about the Tennessee Titans and, and the Patriots. Uh, first question for you is looking back, what are you going to remember more? Are you going to remember Tom Brady throwing the pick six or that horrible hat he wore in the post post game interview? The thing that I would probably remember most about that game is what Mike Vrabel did on, on the special teams on their second to last possession. They've got the ball at about 640 on the clock and it's fourth down and he takes three consecutive penalties. And he keeps the clock running and gets it under five minutes. I think he runs off two minutes on the clock, shortens the game, and then the Patriots run four plays and ended up punting it back to the Tennessee Titans. And effectively, that's the game. I mean, they did get the ball back to the Patriots with like 25 seconds left, but the ball was pinned inside the five, and they had to drive, what, 70 yards in order to get the field goal range, in order to get in the field goal range. And we all knew that wasn't going to happen, so... That's probably the biggest takeaway from last night's game, the part about it that impresses me the most, because you typically see the New England Patriots taking advantage of the rules late in games like that. To see Mike Vrabel give Bill Belichick a dose of his own medicine, that to me was special. But, I mean, Derrick Henry was the game for the Tennessee Titans. I mean, being able to run the ball for 182 yards. Set the franchise record. I mean, just he was dominant. Had an argument with Jordan Renan on Friday about the importance of being able to run the ball and stop the run. And you saw that yesterday on display because the Titans controlled time of possession. They controlled the clock. They shortened the game. And for a struggling Patriots offense, they didn't give them a lot of opportunities to get on track. When you limit possessions the way that the Tennessee Titans did, it's going to be tough to win. And so that was impressive to see what they were able to do. They always said in January, run game and defense travels for them to go into Foxborough and get that win, that was very impressive. It was, it was. This is Bill Belichick post game on what went wrong. It's a game where we uh you know, came up a little bit short at our opportunities and obviously a close game, but just couldn't just couldn't make enough plays tonight. And uh you know, it's always disappointing to, to end like this. But it's the National Football League. We just keep playing, we gotta just gotta play a little bit better and we couldn't do it. Bill Belichick on on how did the Titans win? Yeah, well, they they made some key plays in critical situations, you know, in the red area on third down, and ultimately those plays were were probably the difference in the game. Again, Tom Brady not finishing in typical Tom Brady style with a pick six. Here's Tom. Well, I think anytime you you lose games and don't produce the way you'd want, there's probably a lot of things. And, you know, we all wish we could do a lot better. Um, I certainly wish I could do some things better, but we didn't. And it's a results business and. It's about winning and losing, and the more things you do right and well, the better chance you have to win, and um, just didn't do enough things right. Uh, your thoughts on, on Tom Brady, 
Chris. I mean, this is going to be a topic I'm sure uh, we're starting to talk about it now. I'm sure you will talk about it um, all week long on Humpty Canty and Rothenberg that you could tune into 10 a.m. right here on 98.7 ESPN. Uh, but there's a lot of talk and speculation. What happens with Tom Brady? He's put his house up for sale in the Boston area, him and his um, his his trainer, um, who are two peas in a pod. Um there's some speculation I've been hearing. He could very well go to the Colts. The Colts are not sold on Jacoby Brissett. Uh, he could very well could go to the Chargers. Looks like the Chargers are ready to move on from uh, Philip Rivers. So, what, well, first and foremost, what are you hearing? Are you? I, I know you. You're all over the place. You cover the NFL uh, better than most. What What are you hearing in your circles, Chris? Well, I haven't heard much, and that just speaks to how close Tom Brady's circle is. That's a tight knit group, and they're not going to let too much information leak and. You know, mum's the word on his future in terms of where he's going to play after the 2019. So I think I, I think this is a situation now where everybody's just speculating. Like, we don't know. We're just trying to connect the dots. And the fact that he did put his house on the market, a lot of people are thinking that he's leaving New England. Now, I would say this. If he leaves New England, where is he going to end up going? Like, I mean, people have brought up the Indianapolis Colts. I just have a hard time seeing Tom Brady and his wife Giselle in Indy and then you bring up the L.A. Chargers. I mean, they do have a home on the West Coast. I mean, is that a possibility? I guess it is technically because Phillip Rivers is in a contract year as well, so he's a free agent. So he, they could decide that they want to upgrade at the quarterback position, recognizing how talented that roster is, top to bottom, try to take advantage of it. But if you're Tom Brady, I mean, you want to compete at the highest levels. I mean, the only reason you would be coming back for another season is to have another crack at a championship. And in order to compete, at that level, you have to have the right supporting cast, including the right head coach and the right organization. And I just don't feel like the Chargers have the commitment to winning that we see with organizations that consistently compete at a high level. You don't see the Chargers having the same commitment like the Baltimore Ravens, like the Pittsburgh Steelers, like the New England Patriots. You just don't see it. I mean, the Spanish, Spanos family has been notorious for being cheap. So if you're Tom Brady, do you want to entrust the twilight of your career to a Chargers organization that has shown that they're not going to surround their quarterback consistently with the best supporting cast? I, I just don't know about that. I just don't see that. So I think if Tom Brady decides that he's going to come back to play, and based on the quarterback vacancies around the league, I think it would make the most sense for him to stay in New England. Let's go to Emmanuel and Flushing. Emmanuel, welcome in. Good morning, guys. Happy New Year. Same to you. Um, I just want to say this, man. Those two games were so fantastic. The Texans and the, um, and the Bills games. I will say this: teams like the Cleveland Browns and the Chicago Bears. What could have? What could have been? <laughs> if they saw Watson. Oh, if they would have drafted him. Um. <laughs> well, they didn't, and um, and they have Baker Mayfield. <laughs> Let's go to D in Queens. D, you're up. What's going on, Anita? Every time I call you, basically, we're the only ones who guess Lamar Jackson. <laughs> and yeah, straight up, like, listen, the Patriots have been on fumes. Atlanta choked. Russell Wilson made one of the worst passes ever. And last year, the wrong team was in the Super Bowl versus them. Like, this has been shaky, to say the least. People acting like they were this juggernaut. No, they've been very lucky. Very fortunate that other teams beat themselves, and they went against a team that didn't beat themselves. I'm like, listen, Father Time, Mother Nature is, uh, you know, undefeated. Like, stop acting like 
Tom Brady's going to come back next year and ball out. He's 42 and was looking terrible this year. <laughs> okay, so what makes you think next year he's going to be better? Stop blaming the receivers. He's been throwing pick sixes. No one else has been doing that. Why is it he gets all the credit when they win and when they lose it's everyone else's fault? I'm so sick of it. I'm so sick of everyone kissing their butt. Oh, yeah, they cheat all the time. There's that part. <laughs> well, D, what it is, man, is the sustained excellence. You're talking about the best quarterback, head coach. Dan. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Listen. D, you can argue cheating and all of that other stuff. That, 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 that's, that's something that you put off to the side. The fact that they have been to nine Super Bowls, you have to appreciate what they've been able to do. In a salary cap era, to go to the Super Bowl essentially every other year is damn impressive. So, I mean, you can qualify it however you want and bring up Spygate, Spygate 2, Deflategate, but Tom Brady and Bill Belichick are arguably the best head coach quarterback tandem the NFL has ever seen. you got to give them their props. So the fact that they come up short sometimes, I think people look at other areas of areas to blame because you've seen those guys – compete at such a high level for so long. They get the benefit of the doubt when things don't go the Patriots' way. The supporting cast for the Patriots, they never do because those parts have been thought to be interchangeable over the years. But I think now we're starting to see the diminished skill set of Tom Brady, and when you couple that with not having the strongest supporting cast on offense, I think we understand why this offense hasn't been consistent all year long. This is New York Game Day with Anita Marks and Chris Canty on 98.7 ESPN. He, he is officially eligible to renegotiate his uh, rookie deal. Um, and uh, as all of you know, uh, Jamal's an amazing player. And uh, we saw what he did uh, all year. But really, uh, when we deployed him and he, uh, he was such a factor as a pass rusher around the box. He did so many good things, his leadership. Obviously voted team MVP by his, uh, by his peers, um, a special guy. You know, um, obviously we're just starting our process. We're, uh, we're, we're gonna get, we're gonna get in with, uh, with the coaching staff. We're gonna go, uh, that's, that's really the start of our entire process as far as, you know, talking, talking about each player, each contract, you know, what we're gonna do moving forward. So that's something we're gonna, we're gonna, uh, discuss at the end of the week. That was Joe Douglas discussing Jamal Adams' future with the New York Jets. And, you know, this is one of those things where the franchise can go down a different road. You know, Adam Gase has shown throughout his tenure as a head coach, three years down in Miami, first year up here with the, with the Jets, that he is one of those guys that is going to look for value in players, and he's not necessarily in love with playing guys top-of-the-market money. One of the deals that he necessarily wasn't on board with was Mike McCagnan paying Le'Veon Bell over $13 million a year on a contract in free agency. Adam Gase, on the record, was saying that he didn't necessarily think that you had to pay that kind of money, especially at that position. But but clearly, Lev Bell, that was what it was going to take for the New York Jets to be able to get him one of the best skill position players that was in last year's free agent class. Now, in looking at where Jamal Adams is with his career. This is his third season with the New York Jets after your third year under the current collective bargaining agreement. Players have the right to ask to renegotiate the contracts and clubs can get long-term extensions done. So the question now becomes, does Adam Gase see the value in extending a player like Jamal Adams? Because, folks, let me tell you something. Jamal Adams is going to ask for his contract to be renegotiated this offseason. 
And so I do think it's going to be an interesting, you know, negotiation this offseason, knowing that at the trade deadline, you already had some rumors about Jamal Adams potentially being moved. You saw the rift that he had with Adam Gase earlier uh, this season in social media. He took the Jets out of his out of his profile. I mean, th- there have been some things that have popped up this year where you're questioning whether or not Adam Gase and Jamal Adams are on the same page. But now the fact that Jamal Adams has made the All-Pro team after being a Pro Bowler in his second year, I think clearly everybody looks at him as one of the premier safeties in the National Football League. And you couple that with the fact that the Chicago Bears just extended their young All-Pro safety in Eddie Jackson. I think it's a situation now where the New York Jets understand where those negotiations will start. Jamal Adams will want to be the highest paid safety in football. Eddie Jackson just got $14.6 million in average annual value on his new contract. Jamal Adams will look to exceed that. Folks are going to be talking about a $15 million a year contract. Number one, is it worth it to pay a safety in today's NFL that kind of money? And secondly, do you think Adam Gase and Joe Douglas will get that done? So I throw that out there to you, Jets fans, 1-800-919-3776. That's what I want to know. Do you think that it's worth paying Jamal Adams that kind of money to remain with Gang Green? Or do you feel like it's in your best interest to try to trade Jamal Adams and get a lot of draft picks and continue to try to rebuild in the Adam Gase, Joe Douglas era of Jets football? Me personally, I look at Jamal Adams as a cornerstone piece. He is a guy that you have to absolutely build around. You don't really have a whole lot of playmakers, and you haven't drafted well for the better part of this past decade. So, to me, if you've got a homegrown guy that produces, I think you have to keep him around because you have to have difference makers in order to win in this league. You have to have guys that can win their one-on-one matchups, guys that can change the complexion of the play of the game on any given play. Jamal Adams has shown that. Whether it was the New York Giants game, we had the strip sack on Daniel Jones and runs it back for a touchdown. I mean, we see Jamal Adams being able to pressure the quarterback. We've seen him being able to make plays on the back end of the defense in the deep middle of the field. I mean, Jamal Adams has been a weapon for Greg Williams to deploy all year long. Let's face facts. This defense is why this Jets team was able to be competitive in the second half. Yeah, I know you got your quarterback back. I know this team went 6-2 and two in their final eight games, but that was more because of the defense than it had anything to do with the offense. The Jets had the worst offense in the National Football League. The way that they were able to get this season turned around was because you have the seventh-ranked defense. That's what it is. And on that defense, your best player is Jamal Adams. You talked about all the injuries that happened earlier in the year on the offensive side of the ball, whether it's Kelechi Semele or Ryan Khalil, or Quincy Inunua, and you try to figure out, well, how were the Jets able to survive all those injuries on that side of the ball? Look at what happened on the defensive side of the ball. Look at all the guys they lost. I mean, before the season even starts, Avery Williamson, he's gone. C.J. Man- CJ Mosley, you lose him after the first game of the regular season. Those are impact players. But you were able to survive that because Greg Williams put the X's and O's in place But you also had guys like Jamal Adams playing above the X's and O's. And that's what this team is going to continue to need. I think it's no question that Jamal is the emotional leader in that locker room. So if it were me, you got to open up the coffers 
and you got to pay Jamal Adams. I think it sends the right message to your locker room when you draft a guy that highly and he produces that we're going to keep him around. I think it lets everybody know that if you play hard and you're able to produce, then this organization is going to reward you. I think that goes a long ways into establishing the kind of culture that breeds sustained success. There would be no way, if I was the general manager of the Jets, that I would even entertain trading Jamal Adams this offseason. You're not paying that many guys. So you might as well go ahead and pay the one guy that you did draft and hit on in Jamal Adams. Let's go to Anthony in Brooklyn. Anthony, you're on New York game day. Hey, good morning, Kathy. How you feel today, man? I'm doing all right. Hey. How about yourself? I'm good, man. Hanging in there, man. And I agree with you. Uh, you got to sign these young guys, Adams in particular, because uh, what happens? So every time we get rookies and draft picks and when they career or contracts mature, we get rid of them for another bunch of rookies and draft picks. We have to stop and set some guys as cornerstones and, and, and get this thing together because uh, the Jets is in, 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 uh, technically is a mess. The organization is a mess, man. There's no consistency. So they have to start somewhere. Adams would be that uh, guy to start with, man. I appreciate you uh, taking my call. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for jumping on. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you got to start with something to build around. Every team has to have an identity. I think clearly this Jets team's identity is going to be on the defensive side of the ball. After all, look at how they've invested their resources over the years. Now, I'm not saying that they've hit on all of these guys, but they did draft Leonard Williams with a top 10 pick. They took Darren Lee with a top 20 pick. They took Quentin Williams this past year with the third overall pick. They took Jamal Adams with the sixth overall pick three years ago. They put a ton of money into C.J. Mosley this offseason in free agency. I mean, they've Marcus May, a high second-round pick. They've put a lot of resources on the defensive side of the ball. And then, of course, Chris Johnson demanded that in his coaching search this past offseason, that coach be paired with Greg Williams as their defensive coordinator. I think this organization has a clear vision for what they want this team to be, and it's going to start with the defensive side of the ball. So if that's going to be your identity, then it makes sense to pay your most impactful player on that side of the ball, that being Jamal Adams. I mean, the season that he had, folks, was a spectacular season, game-changing play after game-changing play, I mean, the guy has shown you that it's important to him. Everything you hear out of his mouth is about team first. I mean, this is the type of guy that you would want to build your team, your, your defense around. I mean, in terms of playing the safety position, there's nothing that he can't do at a high level that you would want a safety to do in today's NFL. So that, that to me is why the decision to pay Jamal Adams is a no brainer. Let's go out to Eli in New York, Newark. Eli, you're on New York game day. Uh, good morning, Chris. A couple of things first. Uh, along with you, your family, everybody at ESPN, a wonderful, blessed, happy, safe, and prosperous New Year, right? And number two, I want to thank you for helping us win that Super Bowl, brother. I really mean that, too, because I don't know when we ever get another one. My man. <laughs> Come on, don't say that, Eli. Don't say that. No, I'm, just saying, I'm just saying, but listen, uh, I agree with you a thousand percent. Plus, I heard uh, Carl Banks doing a game with a guy named Bob Poppers. Yeah, and he was talking about Jamal Adams and all about the thing about the, uh, the trade or whatever. He heard he was upset. He said, he said, "Forget about that nonsense." Carl Banks said he would want eleven players on defense, just like Jamal Adams. Then he took a step further. He said, "I want the whole team to have that same attitude as Jamal Adams." I agree with him and you a million percent. Thank you, bro. I appreciate you calling in. I mean, yeah, you you want guys that have that type of mentality. 
Jamal Adams is relentless. I mean, you can't take that away from him. The way that he approaches it, he's a top competitor, and that's where it starts. You have to change the culture of this organization because it's been really, really bad. I mean, you had the two AFC Championship game appearances in 2009 and 2010, but since then, I mean, it's been it's been all ugly for the New York Jets, and you've got to find a way to try to get this thing turned around, and I think Jamal Adams gives you a chance to start by changing the culture in, in that building. Let's go to Jim in Valley Stream. Jim, you're on New York Game Day. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Good, good. Two points I just want to make. One, I, I don't understand why we have to make Jamal the top in his third year. That seems like, can't we just throw him like 8 to 10 for the first two years and then bump him to 15 or something? Well, Jim, if you're Jamal Adams, why would you settle for that? Why would you, set, why would you take a deal that's below market value? Well, you're under contract, that's why. He's got two more years on his deal, right? Yeah, he does. He does, plus the team reserves the right to be able to franchise him. But I, I think that they're showing pretty good faith if they do a long-term deal. But did it have to pay 15 the first year? That seems kind of crazy. Well, it seems kind of crazy, but Jamal Adams is not going to settle for anything less. There is no hometown discount when you're considered the best at your position. And Jamal Adams was just voted first-team All-Pro. If you're voting first team all pro, like I just think that this is a situation where Jamal Adams feels like he has a tremendous amount of leverage. And yeah. so that's what he's going to try to go to the organization and proposition him. I don't think you're going to get a deal done for less than making him the highest paid safety in football. And one other thing, Chris, uh, you, I know how you, I know your feelings on Gates. I, I listen to you all and you know, it, it's still, it's still up in the air how, what kind of coach he is, but, uh, you know, you, you make fun of the Jet fans because they had a good second half. But do you realize that they had the second-best record in football the second half? Yeah, they had the second-best record in football, and they had the easiest strength of schedule in the yeah, second half. I don't care who you're playing, man. If you're well, who you're playing, oh, oh, you got oh, You do have to care about who you're playing. Context does matter. I mean, the fact no, that they won that really game up in Buffalo they're Week good. 17, you like that, but the Buffalo Bills didn't play any of their starters. I mean, so, I mean, I don't know how much stock you can put in that game. The win at home against Pittsburgh week 16, when Pittsburgh had everything to play for, that to me was an impressive win. And you did it with defense and special teams, which is the identity of the team. I feel good about that. I feel good about Sam Darnold in year two having a winning record in the 13 games that he started. The team was seven and six. So it feels like there are some tangible things that you can hold on to going into year two with this new regime. But I, I, don't, I don't think you need to have a misperception about who you are. There's still a lot of work to be done with this New York Jets franchise. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. All right, Chris, thanks. All right, appreciate it, Jim. Let's go to Gabe in Queens. Gabe, you're on New York Game Day. CC, happy New Year, man, you and the family. Appreciate it. Same to you and yours. What you got for me today? So – this is my concern with the Jets. It is disconcerting that we even have to have this conversation. Jamal Adams is a glue guy. You keep that guy. I was at the game versus the Dolphins, and that guy was on the sidelines. I have never seen anything like that from an injured player. Up and down the sidelines, amping up the team. That is a guy. He is a culture changer. You do not let that guy walk. You sign him regardless. That is the guy that's going to take the Jets into the future. And if we don't, it's going to be the same old Jets. Gabe, I'm right there with you. And this is one of those situations where you want the head coach and the general manager to do the right thing. I think everybody in the fan base, by and large, is on board with paying Jamal Adams what it takes to lock him up long term. 
It's just a matter of seeing whether or not Joe Douglas and Adam Gase see the value proposition in doing that. This is New York Game Day with Anita Marks and Chris Canty on 98.7 ESPN. Coaching opportunities. Okay. Mike McCarthy's been interviewed. Uh, Chris Richards, uh, I believe, has been interviewed yes. by, by the Giants. Mm-hmm. Um, Josh McDaniels, there's been a request for him, but he does not want to. Well, reports are he does not want to interview with the Giants. He has no interest. Mm-hmm. Um, your th- let's start with first of all, Mike, Mike McCarthy. A lot of people believe that Mike McCarthy would be an excellent fit, considering this would be, you know, Daniel Jones' second year. We saw what he was able to do, of course, with Brett Favre and, and Aaron Rodgers. There's some talk and speculation out there as well that Jason Garrett is out of Dallas. Maybe it's a Mike McCarthy head coach, and the Giants bring Jason Garrett back home to be offensive coordinator for uh, for for Daniel Jones. Do you like that one-two punch? Well, if Jason Garrett was going to remain with the organization, I think that would have came out of the last round of meetings that Jerry Jones and Stephen Jones had with him down there in Dallas. So I do think that the Cowboys are parting ways with Jason Garrett, and he will be elsewhere this year, if not unemployed this year but uh, as far as Mike McCarthy goes I think Mike McCarthy is going to have options I mean you know there's already been rumored interest with the Cleveland Browns now he's being linked to the Dallas Cowboys vacancy as you just mentioned and of course the New York Giants are interested in him as well I mean Mike McCarthy is going to be able to write his home ticket so to speak just because he has extensive experience as a head coach in this league and he's won at the highest level it's not every day that you have a Super Bowl winning head coach on the market looking for a job. And so Mike McCarthy has shown that he can be able to get that done. Green Bay was a wild card team when they won the Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers back in 2010. I mean, that was impressive, the fact that they were able to do that. So, uh, I mean, Mike McCarthy has already talked about, you know, in his year off embracing analytics, trying to have some fresh ideas to go along with some of his football philosophies and concepts of old. So I think that... Right now, based on where today's NFL is going, Mike McCarthy would be a logical choice for a team that is trying to build a program like the New York Giants. The only question is whether or not Dave Gettleman, John Mara, and Steve Tisch are able to put together an offer that would be more attractive than what other teams could offer, like the Dallas Cowboys, like the Cleveland Browns. The Browns have already come out and said they want their next head coach to have input on who the general manager is going to be. I think that's something that's significant. The Dallas Cowboys are clearly a more talented roster than the New York Giants. So the question now becomes, where are you in terms of most attractive jobs based on the head coaching vacancies that are out there in the landscape of the NFL? Clearly, I don't think the Giants are at the top of that list. That's why I come out and question, what is it that the Giants can do in order to make it a more attractive proposition for somebody like Mike McCarthy? Great point you made with the Cleveland Browns because it was uh, something that I talked about at length on my show yesterday, actually for over an hour, and I got a lot of calls. Not a fan of the Cleveland Browns' ownership, uh, and you know I've been calling them a poop show. Too many Chiefs, not enough Indians. But here's the thing. What? What? What, boo? Okay. But here's the thing. I love their philosophy, thinking – I'm going to let the head coach – I'm going to bring in – it's more important for me. I'm going to hire the head coach and then I'm going to let the head coach have a say in the, in the general manager. Because here's the thing, Chris. I've been covering the NFL for a long time. I think the most important job is the head coach, more so than the general manager. General manager's job is to oversee the scouting department and make wise decisions with money, free agency, cap space, 
when to cut guys loose, when to sign them, and overseeing a scouting department that's going to give you the best information, the best intel on players. A head coach, it's his job to really manage men and lead men into battle and not just players, coaches, coordinators. A head coach is responsible for, I feel, the entire organizational structure, vibe, feel, element. You know, the Giants organization felt much different when Tom Coughlin was there than Ben McAdoo. Right? Like Jerry Reese, Dave Gettleman, no difference. Granted, yeah, you say, well, yeah, well, kind of a big difference. Dave Gettleman, his last few draft classes, uh, much better than Jerry Reese. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm I'm talking about organizational culture and feel and vibe. Head coach to me is the most important, the most important position for an organization such as a football team. And I feel that, I feel that it should be as such, not where you hire the general manager and then the general manager then sits with the owner and decides who the head coach is going to be. No, 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 not today. Not in today's NFL, especially coaching millennials. Do you do you agree with that philosophy or no? Oh, I completely agree, Anita. I think the head coach is clearly more important in today's NFL because the athletes that you are working with crave transparency and they're more empowered than they've ever been. I heard Steve Young talking about this yesterday on NFL Countdown before the Texans-Bills game. And the one thing that he said is players need to be able to trust what the head coach is saying, and they need to be able to understand that he is the final authority when it comes to football decisions that are being made within the organization. Players need to know that there's not a workaround when it comes to what the head coach says. They need to know that what the head coach says is what goes. Not that they can go to the general manager, not that they can go to the owner and circumvent the head coach's authority. So when you look at today's athlete and today's athlete's mentality, I think they have to be able to trust that what they're getting from the head coach is is what the owner is going to say and is what the general manager is going to say. You need to have one voice in the building articulating the vision for where the franchise is going with the players. And to me, that is the head coach, not the general manager. Because let's face it, Anita, the head coach is the guy that's with the players every single day. Yep. The GM sits on high. Most Most buildings in the NFL, how it's set up, the head coach and the players and all the meeting rooms and the locker rooms, they're on the first floor of the building, and the second floor is personnel and scouting. Isn't that how it works in the yep. That's what it is. And so the head coach is the one that's with the players every single day. Players don't typically see the general manager or personnel decision makers. They see the head coach. They talk to the head coach every single day. They have to be able to trust that what the head coach is saying is law within the organization. If they don't, that's how you have dysfunction within your franchise. That's how you see what's been going on with the New York Jets for the better half of the decade when you have an organizational structure where the general manager and the head coach are on the same level and both report to the owner. It needs to be a clear voice, a clear authority in the building with today's athlete, and I think that's why the Cleveland Browns have prioritized finding their next head coach and having him have a say with their next general manager, you wonder what that dynamic is going to be with the Giants making the decision to keep Dave Gettleman. I'm with you. Let's go to Todd in Manhattan. Todd, you're up. Hi, guys. Good morning. Happy New Year. Same to you. Uh, you know, Chris, i got to tell you something. It's a pleasure to talk to you, but I've been trying to get on uh, to call you Thursday, Friday, because what I don't understand is you, you said today, earlier this morning, that you don't think the Giants uh, is a great job. I mean, how can it not be? You have a stud running back, a stud uh, QB, 
uh, New York market, and I think it's an ideal job for any coach. And secondly, you and Dave, and now Anita, I heard you this morning, you're killing Gettleman. Let me ask you this, Chris. Time out, time out, Todd. I'm not killing Gettleman. I've, I, don't, I don't kill Gettleman. Okay, but Chris and Dave have, so let me amend that. So, but Chris, let me ask you a question. How much, if you take Gettleman out of the equation, how much time do you think you need to give a general manager to turn it around? Because Reese, I just did a deep dive a few weeks ago. In 2014, 2015, and maybe even 2016, there's nobody on our roster that's still left that he drafted. I mean, he left the cupboard bare. Plus, we had salary cap hell. So the guy's doing a pretty good job. I'll, I'll give him Solder was a terrible signing. But everybody else, I mean, uh, Connolly, the linebacker, was starting early until he got hurt, the receiver. I mean, don't you think as a, as a player, who, or as a, general, a person who played for the Giants, you'd be rooting for the fact that Gettleman will work out? Because all you guys talk about is that it won't work out. And then the new whoa, 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 Todd, Todd. I always root for the Giants. I have a vested interest in that organization. I got blood in the ground at MetLife Stadium. I, I won a Super Bowl with that team. I'm a native New Yorker. Of course I want the Giants to be successful, but I'm also going to be objective in telling you what I see. I'm not going to drink the blue Kool-Aid and lie to you about the job that Dave Gettleman has done. Do you realize that the Giants had $60 million in contracts in production that guys weren't giving you on the field? I you had $60 million essentially in dead money this year. A third of your salary cap, $23 million in a quarterback that wasn't playing. So what the Odell Beckham Jr. Still contract, still the Patrick Amame contract. Those were all deals that you had dead money on. You weren't getting production. So I can't say that Dave Gettleman has done a great job. But I did can't. Dave Gettleman sign Eli to the big contract? And what was he supposed to do? He was he couldn't trade him? No, he was supposed to move on from Eli Manning when you recognize you're going through a rebuild. When you take a quarterback with a top ten pick, guess what? Your team is going through a rebuild. To think that you can rebuild and still be competitive was a mistake. And you have to blame Gettleman because he was the architect for the plan. Now, I do believe that John Mara had some involvement with that. I do believe that John Mara had that stipulation when he hired Dave Gettleman that you were going to retool it around Eli Manning rather than transition away from Eli Manning in 2018. I do believe that was the case, but that still doesn't stop me from holding Gettleman accountable because Gettleman took the damn job under those pretenses. So you have to evaluate the job that he's done. And I don't think he's done a very good job. I, I know, but he's made some good moves, Chris. And by the he's way, he's made some good ones. He's made some bad ones. But right. even the owner said he's got to improve on his batting average. So it ain't just me. The guy that's paying him says that the job that Dave Gutterman is doing ain't good enough. Why are you upset at me? I'm just telling you what I see. I've been around the game over a decade. I think I got a pretty good idea. I, I played for Bill Parcells. I played for Tom Coughlin. I played for John Harbaugh. All three of those coaches won Super Bowls. I know what the hell I'm talking about because I was taught the game by the best minds football is seen. So don't get mad at me because I'm telling you what I see from Dave Gettleman and the job he's done the last couple of years. I think it's obvious. Let's go to somebody who I think agrees with you, Chris. It's Terrence in the Brooks. Terrence, you're up. Hey, how you guys doing? Chris, you're 100% right. Dave Gettleman decimated that defense. Collins is gone. Harrison is gone. Vernon is gone. Like he, he didn't help. He didn't. He didn't help um, the coach at all. You know. Then he got rid of Odell Beckham Jr. Like you know. Then he, now he needs a quarterback. He got Jones. He could have had uh, Sam Darnold. You know. So it's like this guy Gettleman. He acts like he's the smartest guy in the room, but he's actually not. You're 100 percent right, Chris. Absolutely. Now we got to see what happens in terms of 
who he's going to be working with and, and where they decide to land with the head coach. I mean, the fact that the Giants kept Dave Gettleman around, you'd have to think that with the owners being upset about how things have gone the last couple of years, that the head coach that they hire will have more say than head coaches in years past with the Giants just because they don't fully have the confidence in the general manager. So to me, that's what makes this coaching search really interesting. Matt Rule, Mike McCarthy, those guys will have opportunities elsewhere to be a head coach. The question is, how attractive is this Giants job to the candidate that they have at the top of their wish list? This is New York Game Day with Anita Marks and Chris Canty on 98.7 ESPN.